with the powers that be daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, August 8th, and for today's Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about some of the tough calls David Zaslov has been making at Warner Brothers Discovery, and how the ruthless strategy of, quote, finding efficiencies will play out among the rank and file. And we discuss whether Joe Biden can fix his underwater media narrative before it's too late. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Happy Monday, everybody. It's your boy Peter Hamby back from a lengthy vacation that John Kelly let me go on. So I want to kick off this uh, next quarter, fall, whatever, Q3, Q4 with with you, uh, John, on Media Monday, as always. How are you doing? Oh, Peter, we had a great time with our pal, Teddy, who we love dearly, but I'm thrilled. I'm just surprised I didn't see you getting hosed down anywhere by Ari Emanuel or Elon Musk. I, I was waiting to, to see I, you on the tender to the yacht, but uh, I guess you kept those <laughs> photos private. You, you know how to pay off Dylan Howard or, or whatever. Yeah, I didn't see, we were in Greece. I didn't see Elon. Um, Katie hosed me down with Rosé at one point, but we kept that, those stay in the memes. Those That's not <laughs> yeah. for tabloid consumption. <laughs> that's why you got to be private on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I did have, a, we did have a fun tabloid moment though. Actually, we uh, went to Paris uh, before going to Greece on this trip and we woke up one morning, just walked all over the city and Paris is the absolute best and came back to our hotel and there are all these like hordes of tourists and paparazzi like outside of the entrance to our hotel. And we were like, what's going on here? And I went on Twitter and found out that Ben and J-Lo were staying at our hotel on their honeymoon. Well, what a truly batshit world we live in that, uh, that Benifer, <laughs> um is, is back and better than ever. But um, well, welcome back. Uh, I'll forward you Teddy's notes. Um, he left a few and um, we'll get you right up to speed in no time. Great. Thank you for that. So, hey, uh, you know, there was a lot of news that happened when I left and the myth that no news happens in August continues to be busted. Last week, Warner Brothers Discovery had their earnings call. Zaz, David Zaslov, the head of the whole enterprise, made a lot of news. (laughs) He talked about the coming merger of HBO Max and Discovery+. Plus. He said, you know, and this was a poke in the eye to Jason Kyler's strategy, that they were going to dial back releasing all movies on streaming when they come out. But importantly, he totally spiked this Batgirl movie, which has like Michael Keaton, a bunch of big names, like the movie's like almost done. That's a crazy story. I mean, that's a huge like brand, blockbuster, et cetera. This is all part of his effort to cut costs and find efficiencies, quote unquote. What point does that strategy run up against just like, pissing everybody off and ruining morale, that feels like a tough place to be if you work there. Yeah, I find the, the whole thing is, is is mesmerizing. You know, Zaslav for the year, 
that this deal was going through diligence and legal phase and there's all, all the complexities when you're trying to merge a, a already public company with a entity in Warner Media that's a ginormous unit of a another public company in AT&T. Zaslav spent a lot of it ostensibly charming Hollywood. He's, you know, he is a, a cable OG, like from the GE Jack Welch School, helped create CNBC and MSNBC and, and built Discovery out of parts into a meaningful um, $30 billion market cap public company. Many people thought he was going to Hollywood to burnish his credentials with the Ari Emanuel, Brian Lord landscape so that it would be, these would be valuable relationships that would pay off when he became the CEO of the parent company that ran Warner Brothers and HBO. What people didn't talk about during this year courtship phase, of course, he also you know, bought Robert Evans' old house, which is just sort of amusing. Um, <laughs> what, what they didn't talk about was that he was also laying the groundwork for the massive financial engineering project, which, which lays at the foot of the Warner Brothers Discovery entity. Like This was a highly levered company coming out of AT&T, and Zaslav burnished these creative relationships, but he wasn't burnishing them to suck up to people to say, oh, will you please get your movie star to star in my movie? He was managing these relationships to say, look, there are going to be some very, very difficult decisions that I have to make. I don't want to make them. Nobody grew up to want to be a cost cutter, but this is the hand that I was dealt. There are massive inefficiencies that have to be managed when you're you know, merging these kinds of companies, and we're going to have a different strategy. And on a fundamental level, the different strategy is for a very long time, everyone thought Netflix was the answer. Netflix was true north and true north meant it was a streaming landscape that looked like a, a kind of non-live TV, movies and shows, a lot of CBS style, mid-market stuff, and just a lot of spaghetti at the wall. Zaz is building a streaming entity that looks a little bit more like the cable world that he came from, where there's news and sports and movies that are usually big movies that play in theaters and then go to streaming after a brief window. And movies like Batgirl, which are caught somewhere in the in this murky middle where they cost like $90 million. They're built on important IP, but there's no economic model for them. So he's articulating a new industrial logic for this kind of streaming company. And the big news out of the earnings last week was that the EBITDA promise he made to Wall Street missed. He said that we think this combined company is going to have $14 billion in 2023 in, in EBITDA, which is, you know, sort of operating profitability for, for a business. And it's going to be closer to 12. But the shock wave sent is that it's a two-way marketplace. He is focused on the investor side, the Wall Street side, much more than he is focused on the creative community side. He knows that in this new economy that we're in, where Wall Street does value streaming companies as media companies, which is the, the lesson of this spring. Netflix is not going to be valued like it's Microsoft. It's going to be valued more like it's Comcast. Then Zaslav has to say to the creative community, look, these are hard truths and I'm managing towards them. And you don't want to play ball? Go to the competitors. But the reality is that, you know, Netflix is going to be telling these people the same thing. Shouldn't Zaslav have a little more leeway when it comes to this earnings miss or whatever? Like, Revenue everywhere is down right now because of the market. And also, like if you're coming in with a weed whacker to a company, like a legacy company that's just as, as, as huge as Warner Brothers and Discovery, it's going to take you a while to find your quote-unquote efficiencies. I know Wall Street has like no patience and no attention span, but I mean, feels like you should have a little more <laughs> runway. It's a fair point. 
But here's the sort of like Zaz generous view of it. Time Warner, so the, the entity that Jeff Bukas ran after he spun out the magazine division and then sold nearly $100 billion to the bean counters in Dallas, the AT&T guys, that was run almost like a holding company. There were different fiefs. HBO had a fiefdom. CNN was run like a separate company. They added more debt to these, these companies, and they, and they didn't entirely break down this operational structure. So to Zaz, who has made probably a billion dollars in, in personal wealth by operational efficiencies, and that was the GE model, that was the, the, the Jack Welch model of, you know, cut the lowest performers, financial engineering, operation, ec, operational excellence. I think he's, he sees this kind of balance sheet that he's inherited and he must think to himself, this is not business. These are a bunch of entities that don't have anywhere near the efficiencies that they need to have. And once we actually give them the efficiencies, we will be able to manage the whole entity a lot more smoothly. He comes from the view that this is a business and he will manage the creative people in a way that keeps them satisfied and obviously he has so many deals to go around that he can tuck people in, and I think he's willing to take that gamble. He can piss off Brian Lord and Ari Emanuel. He cannot piss off the biggest institutional investors that are helping to capitalize this deal, and he cannot piss off his shareholders. In this case, he's he's the Jack Donaghy um, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Could it be under the purview at some point, as Bill Cohan reported, of Cable Town, <laughs> to oh. <laughs> use the tortured 30 Rock analogy, a.k.a. Comcast. Would Comcast ever kind of swoop in here if, if things don't go <laughs> the way Zaz wants them to? Bill wrote this great piece this week that sort of foreshadows the possibilities here. I love this phrase, um, preserve your optionality, which I always thought meant like kind of keep your hand to yourself. But, but it, what it really means is like execute on a plan. And then over time, if you if you do it well, that plan leads to like, many multiples of other plans that can make you in, insane amounts of money here. And I think that first and foremost, Zaslav is executing a plan that will make his company more profitable and, and have better EBITDA. If he does that, one way to maximize the value is yes. If a company like Comcast, as Bill posited this week, comes up with a creative deal where NBC, Universal, and Sky, which are two elements of big elements of the Comcast portfolio, are seem to be undervalued inside of Comcast, which still has, you know, a, a massive like physical cable line business. So what if like Zaz gets more assets to manage and Comcast gets to control that entity while also being a pure play cable company inside of itself and, and the Roberts family gets to operate both, which they're, they're comfortable doing joint ventures and they're comfortable operating them. It, it's a tantalizing idea, largely because if you estimate that the EBITDA of the Comcast media assets are like seven or eight billion dollars, and that Zaslav is looking at you know twelve plus in twenty twenty three. Then you're getting around near twenty. Then you are then talking about a legitimate Netflix size competitor, and you're talking about one that is probably built in the most hybrid, flexible way for how people really probably will want to view in the future, which is they'll want to see movies, they'll want to see TV shows, maybe some good ones, maybe some bad ones, maybe some garbage like Doctor Pimple Popper, and also news and sports. I think it would be doable. CNN is a case in point here. Like the strategy right now, as our homie you know Dylan has pointed out numerous times, is do more with less, which is a very short-term strategy. That is not a you know a, a new media strategy. That is a manage to the number strategy, and makes you think that there's that it's short-term and that there's something else brewing that's going to come along. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, I'm going to ask John what his favorite show on the Magnolia Network <laughs> is. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about Joe Biden's media narrative, which feels stuck despite the fact that the president is putting points on the board. Can the White House fix the messaging and fix his approval ratings when we come back? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back, everyone. John, I am pulling up as we speak. How popular is Joe Biden? The 538 approval rating average. Joe Biden approval rating average is 39.3%, uh, which is actually up about yeah. two points um, from the end of July. Some of that can be attributed to a great jobs report that came out on Friday. Or maybe the U.S. finally took out Ayman al-Zawahri in Afghanistan 20 years later. He's passed a bunch of bills and might be on the cusp of passing a, a big uh, climate and energy bill with the approval of Manchin and Cinema. But it doesn't feel like Biden can break out of uh, a couple narratives here. You know, once you're this far underwater for any president, it's just hard to get back up. Related to that, Biden just doesn't have the ability to marshal public opinion in the way that Obama and Trump did. And then, you know, it feels like a lot of the bills that are being passed, you know, this is a like, kind of like a Washington scoreboard. You know, these are big mm -hmm. bills mm -hmm. that might be very consequential yes. down the road, but people vote <laughs> based on very transactional things like the price of groceries, price of gas, COVID checks in the mail. This is my government doing something for me, or it it feels bad out there because I'm paying more, you know, every every time I go to the pump or every time I pay my bills. And then policy purists hate this, but, you know, this is the beer test thing. People vote on vibes. <laughs> and Biden's vibes are old, transitional president. He may or may not be FDR in the long run, but it, it just feels like he is more of a one-term president, even if the White House is pushing back on that aggressively. Do you think it's possible for him to right the ship in the next one year? Yeah, I'm sort of surprised that the culture at large is, is overcomplicating this. Biden is immensely likable, but he is right now not favorable. And I feel like the cat has sort of gotten out of the bag here. You know, we, we each read that Axios report from last week that pointed out that Nadler and Carolyn Maloney and Manchin weren't doing things that are very normal, like saying that they endorsed their president in 2024 and their party's leader. By, by the way, this is so funny to me. Like, like this is in your neck of the woods, but Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler uh, are in a, a congressional yeah. primary in New York. A, <laughs> like, a, a gerrymandered uh, primary. Gerrymandered primary, yeah. So, uh, like, with redistricting. But they're, and they're running against a much younger guy, Siraj Patel, for the Democratic nomination in the seat. And, like, Maloney is 76. I know. And Jerry Nadler is 75. And these two old totally. tutors are like, oh, I don't know if Biden should run <laughs> yeah. again. Like, 
you guys are so geriatric. Like, just shut up. The old man, the older, the older at it again. Um, <laughs> but the Biden people like to say that there is a Biden coalition. And it, I think it's clearer now that there is an anti-Trump coalition that if effectively leveraged by the Democratic Party and draped around a different candidate could be equally effective in a, what well, you know, looks increasingly like a, a Trump rematch. I'd be so surprised if Biden runs. I would be so surprised if he wants to go through the agony of running uh, opposed. And I think and I think that that he would be um, he would be primary. And I think that the Hunter mm-hmm. Biden stuff really does weigh on him. Tara's reported that out in a bit. And I think it's absolutely true. Biden also could use that as an out to pull out of this thing. But it's hard to read the future in politics. But if you had to put money on it today, do you, you think Biden's on the ticket in twenty four? I try to step back a little bit from all of the noise and the reporting around this and just think about all the time I spent with Biden. And I think about that first piece I wrote for The Hive for you about Biden back in like 2017. And just like, I haven't known him, you know, as long as like Dan Balls, but I feel like the first time I talked to Joe Biden was 2007. And I don't don't claim to know him well, but I've talked to him on and off the record over the years. And like, he loves being in the game. Like he just loves like being in politics and like he doesn't, he wants to win and he he just wants to be in it. And I do think that, and I've always said, he will talk to Jill and his family over the holidays this year, like after the midterms, make an assessment, yes, about like what the next two years will look like as president and for the Democratic Party, but also like his family, his health, his age and ability to endure another campaign because the next campaign will be the next two years for him. And, you know, my producer Charles and I for my Snapchat show, we spent a lot of time watching like raw video of Biden speaking. A lot of people only see the sound bites or the gaffes. There's just an impression out there that he's losing a step, even though he's always had gaffes, you know, and people have always questioned his his manner of speaking going back years. I mean, the guy's turning 80 years old. I don't I don't think it's controversial to, to lose a step. He, you know, he'd be 86 at the end of a, of a hypothetical second term. That's wild. Totally. And like what the White House is trying to do right now is just is project strength and like push all those concerns aside because he's not a lame duck president. He's trying to get a lot of bills passed. He needs to have muscle with Congress and the American public to the extent that he does. But the other aspect here is if you are going to step aside, like you need to allow these other Democratic campaigns to to actually build campaigns because like the election isn't in 2024, it's the Iowa caucuses at the beginning of 2023. And so heading into 2022, Kamala and Pete and Gavin Newsom and Phil Murphy and what's his name from Illinois, <laughs> like these guys are going to have to like hire staff, raise money, like do all the things they need to do. It just gets harder to do that in a six month period. Biden, his number one concern should be himself, but you know, if he's thinking about the next generation of the party, he should give them some room to breathe and and build campaigns too. And just as similarly, whoever runs against Trump, in my opinion, in, in 2024, they're going to be running against a different kind of Trump. Like Trump is not in the liberal psyche the same way he used to be when he was on CNN every day and on Twitter every day. He's still giving a lot of speeches. He's, he's truthing it up. And I think he is in the brainwaves of his base and, and probably of also like opportunistic but McConnell adjacent Republicans who are willing to deal with the worst of it in order to benefit from certain tax consequences and and, and other things that, that that Trump implicitly promises them. So it's hard to imagine that there will be a turnout of 74 million voters in a non-mail-in COVID election, meaning that the next Democrat who runs needs a massive infrastructure. They need to build it 
and they need to do everything they can to take the best of the anti-Trump coalition the Democrats have amassed and supercharge it. And that's a time-consuming effort. And I think that if Biden has the conversation that he mentioned with his family, which he absolutely will, time will be of the essence. The last thing I'll say, too, is Biden has this idea in his head and the people around him that he's the only guy that can beat Trump. That's not true. One of the biggest biases in, in political journalism is this, like, fetishization of, like, the moment, like what's happening right now. You know, when Trump left office, it was totally implausible that he, like, would not be the Republican nominee again in 2024. He might be. But Ron DeSantis might be too, you know, like there's things change in politics. And I think Biden and the people around him have to acknowledge that none of the Democrats out there are perfect and have the silver bullet, but a good campaign and a good candidate can beat Donald Trump, who is a, remains a very unpopular figure. But those other Democrats do need time to introduce themselves to the American public. John, it's great to be back. Missed you, buddy. Glad you're here. Me too. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.